Section ten of Chapter twenty two of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty two, Section ten. Those who remembered the great woes which his faithless and merciless ambition had brought on Europe might well suspect that his unwonted moderation was not to be ascribed to sentiments of justice or humanity. But, whatever might be his motive for proposing such terms, it was plainly the interest and the duty of the Confederacy to accept them. For there was little hope indeed of wringing from him by war concessions larger than those which he now tendered as the price of peace. The most sanguine of his enemies could hardly expect a long series of campaigns as successful as the campaign of 1695. Yet, in a long series of campaigns, as successful as that of 1695, the Allies would hardly be able to retake all that he now professed himself ready to restore. William, who took, as usual, a clear and statesmanlike view of the whole situation, now gave his voice as decidedly for concluding peace as he had in former years given it for vigorously prosecuting the war, and he was backed by the public opinion both of England and of Holland. But, unhappily, just at the time when the two powers which alone, among the members of the coalition, had manfully done their duty in the long struggle, were beginning to rejoice in the near prospect of repose, some of those governments which had never furnished their full contingents, which had never been ready in time, which had been constantly sending excuses in return for subsidies, began to raise difficulties such as seemed likely to make the miseries of Europe eternal. Spain had, as William in the bitterness of his spirit wrote to Hengius, contributed nothing to the common cause but Rodomontades. She had made no vigorous effort even to defend her own territories against invasion. She would have lost Flanders and Brabant but for the English and Dutch armies. She would have lost Catalonia but for the English and Dutch fleets. The Milanese she had saved not by arms, but by concluding, in spite of the remonstrances of the English and Dutch governments, an ignominious treaty of neutrality. She had not a ship of war able to weather a gale. She had not a regiment that was not ill-paid and ill-disciplined, ragged and famished. Yet, repeatedly, within the last two years, she had treated both William and the States-General with an impertinence which allowed that she was altogether ignorant of her place among states. She now became punctilious, demanded from Lewis concessions which the events of the war gave her no right to expect, and seemed to think it hard that allies, whom she was constantly treating with indignity, were not willing to lavish their blood and treasure for her during eight years more. The conduct of Spain is to be attributed merely to arrogance and folly. But the unwillingness of the emperor to consent even to the fairest terms of accommodation was the effect of selfish ambition. The Catholic king was childless, he was sickly, his life was not worth three years' purchase, and, when he died, his dominions would be left to be struggled for by a crowd of competitors. Both the House of Austria and the House of Bourbon had claims to that immense heritage. It was plainly for the interest of the House of Austria that the important day, come when it might, should find a great European coalition in arms against the House of Bourbon. The object of the Emperor, therefore, was that the war should continue to be carried on, as it had hitherto been carried on, at a light charge to him and a heavy charge to England and Holland, not till just conditions of peace could be obtained, but simply till the King of Spain should die. The ministers of the Emperor, William wrote to Hengius, ought to be ashamed of their conduct. It is intolerable that a government which is doing everything in its power to make the negotiations fail should contribute nothing to the common defence. 
it is not strange that in such circumstances the work of pacification should have made little progress international law like other law has its chicanery its subtle pleadings its technical forms which may too easily be so employed as to make its substance inefficient those litigants therefore who did not wish the litigation to come to a speedy close had no difficulty in interposing delays there was a long dispute about the place where the conferences should be held the emperor proposed a la chapelle the french objected and proposed the hag then the emperor objected in his turn at last it was arranged that the ministers of the allied power should meet at the hag and that the french plenipotentiaries should take up their abode five miles off at delft to delft accordingly repaired harley a man of distinguished wit and good breeding sprung from one of the great families of the robe cressy a shrewd patient and laborious diplomatist and Cayer, who though he was named only third in the credentials was much better informed than either of his colleagues touching all the points which were likely to be debated at the hague were the earl of pembroke and edward viscount villiers who represented england prior accompanied them with the rank of secretary at the head of the imperial legation was count Conitz. at the head of the spanish league was don francisco bernardo de quiros the ministers of inferior rank it would be tedious to enumerate Halfway between delft and the hague is a village named riswick and near it then stood in a rectangular garden which was bounded by straight canals and divided into formal woods flower-beds and melon-beds a seat of the princes of orange the house seemed to have been built expressly for the accommodation of such a set of diplomatists as were to meet there in the centre was a large hall painted by honthorst on the right hand and on the left were wings exactly corresponding to each other each wing was accessible by its own bridge its own gate and its own avenue one wing was assigned to the allies the other to the french the hall in the centre to the mediator some preliminary questions of etiquette were not without difficulty adjusted and at length on the ninth of may many coaches and six attended by harbingers footmen and pages approached the mansion by different roads the swedish minister alighted at the grand entrance the procession from the hag came up the side alley on the right the procession from Delft came up the side alley on the left. At the first meeting, the full powers of the representatives of the belligerent governments were delivered to the mediator. At the second meeting, forty-eight hours later, the mediator performed the ceremony of exchanging these full powers. Then several meetings were spent in settling how many carriages, how many horses, how many lackeys, how many pages each minister should be entitled to bring to Wiswick whether the serving men should carry canes whether they should wear swords whether they should have pistols in their holsters who should take the upper hand in the public walks and whose carriage should break the way in the streets it soon appeared that the mediator would have to mediate not only between the coalition and the french but also between the different members of the coalition the imperial ambassadors claimed a right to sit at the head of the table the spanish ambassador would not admit this pretension and tried to thrust himself in between two of them the imperial ambassadors refused to call the ambassadors of electors and commonwealths by the title of excellency if i am not called excellency said the minister of the elector of brandenburg my master will withdraw his troops from hungary the imperial ambassadors insisted on having a room to themselves in the building and on having a special place assigned to their carriages in the court all the other ministers of the confederacy pronounced this a most unjustifiable demand and a whole sitting was wasted in this childish dispute it may be easily supposed that allies who were so punctilious in their dealings with each other were not likely to be very easy in their intercourse with the common enemy the chief business of early and Conitz was to watch each other's legs 
neither of them thought it consistent with the dignity of the crown which he served to advance towards the other faster than the other advanced towards him if therefore one of them perceived that he had inadvertently stepped forward too quick he went back to the door and the stately minuet began again the ministers of lewis drew up a paper in their own language the german statesmen protested against this innovation this insult to the dignity of the holy roman empire this encroachment on the rights of independent nations and would not know anything about the paper till it had been translated from good french into bad latin in the middle of april it was known to everybody at the hague that charles the eleventh king of sweden was dead and had been succeeded by his son but it was contrary to etiquette that any of the assembled envoys should appear to be acquainted with this fact till lilienroth had made a formal announcement it was not less contrary to etiquette that lilienroth should make such an announcement till his equipages and his household had been put into mourning and some weeks elapsed before his coachmakers and tailors had completed their task at length on the twelfth of june he came to ryswick in a carriage lined with black and attended by servants in black liveries and there in full congress proclaimed that it had pleased god to take to himself the most puissant king charles the eleventh all the ambassadors then condoled with him on the sad and unexpected news and went home to put off their embroidery and to dress themselves in the garb of sorrow in such solemn trifling week after week passed away no real progress was made Lilienroth had no wish to accelerate matters. While the Congress lasted, his position was one of great dignity. He would willingly have gone on mediating forever, and he could not go on mediating unless the parties on his right and on his left went on wrangling. In June the hope of peace began to grow faint. Men remembered that the last war had continued to rage year after year while the Congress was sitting at Nimwegen. The mediators had made their entrance into that town in February 1676, the treaty had not been signed till february sixteen seventy nine yet the negotiation of nimwegen had not proceeded more slowly than the negotiation of ryswick it seemed but too probable that the eighteenth century would find great armies still confronting each other on the meuse and the rhine industrious populations still ground down by taxation fertile provinces still lying waste the ocean still made impassable by corsairs and the plenipotentiaries still exchanging notes drawing up protocols and wrangling about the place where this minister should sit and the title by which that minister should be called but william was fully determined to bring this mummery to a speedy close he would have either peace or war either was in his view better than this intermediate state which united the disadvantages of both while the negotiation was pending there could be no diminution of the burdens which pressed on his people and yet he could expect no energetic action from his allies if france was really disposed to conclude a treaty on fair terms that treaty should be concluded in spite of the imbecility of the catholic king and in spite of the selfish cunning of the emperor if france was insecure the sooner the truth was known the sooner the farce which was acting at ryswick was over the sooner the people of england and holland for on them everything depended were told that they must make up their minds to great exertions and sacrifices the better pembroke and villiers though they had now the help of a veteran diplomatist sir joseph williamson could do little or nothing to accelerate the proceedings of the congress for though france had promised that whenever peace should be made she would recognize the prince of orange as king of great britain and ireland she had not yet recognized him his ministers had therefore had no direct intercourse with harley cressy and cayere william with the judgment and decision of a true statesman determined to open a communication with lewis through one of the french marshals who commanded in the netherlands of those marshals villeroy was the highest in rank but villeroy was weak rash haughty irritable 
such a negotiator was far more likely to embroil matters than to bring them to an amicable settlement. Boufflers was a man of sense and temper, and fortunately he had, during the few days which he had passed at Hoy after the fall of Namur, been under the care of Portland, by whom he had been treated with the greatest courtesy and kindness. A friendship had sprung up between the prisoner and his keeper. They were both brave soldiers, honourable gentlemen, trusty servants. William justly thought that they were far more likely to come to an understanding than Harley and Connets, even with the aid of Lillianroth. Portland, indeed, had all the essential qualities of an excellent diplomatist. In England the people were prejudiced against him as a foreigner. His earldom, his garter, his lucrative places, his rapidly growing wealth, excited envy. His dialect was not understood, his manners were not those of the men of fashion who had been formed at Whitehall. His abilities were therefore greatly underrated, and it was the fashion to call him a blockhead, fit only to carry messages. But on the continent, where he was judged without malevolence, he made a very different impression. It is a remarkable fact that this man, who in the drawing-rooms and coffee-houses of London was described as an awkward, stupid Hogan-Mogan, such was the phrase at that time, was considered at Versailles as an eminently polished courtier and an eminently expert negotiator. His chief recommendation, however, was his incorruptible integrity. It was certain that the interests which were committed to his care would be as dear to him as his own life, and that every report which he made to his master would be literally exact. Towards the close of June, Portland sent to Boufflers a friendly message, begging for an interview of half an hour. Boufflers instantly set off on an express to Lewis, and received an answer in the shortest time in which it is possible for a courier to ride post to Versailles and back again. Lewis directed the marshal to comply with Portland's request, to say as little as possible, and to learn as much as possible. On the 28th of June, according to the old style, the meeting took place in the neighbourhood of Halle, a town which lies about ten miles from Brussels, on the road to Mons. After the first civilities had been exchanged, Boufflers and Portland dismounted, their attendants retired, and the two negotiators were left alone in an orchard. Here they walked up and down during two hours, and in that time did much more business than the plenipotentiaries at Ryswick were able to dispatch in as many months. Till this time the French government had entertained a suspicion, natural indeed, but altogether erroneous, that William was bent on protracting the war, that he had consented to treat merely because he could not venture to oppose himself to the public opinion of both England and of Holland, but that he wished the negotiation to be abortive, and that the perverse conduct of the House of Austria and the difficulties which had arisen at Ryswick were to be chiefly ascribed to his machinations. That suspicion was now removed. Compliments, cold, austere, and full of dignity, yet respectful, were exchanged between the two great princes whose enmity had, during a quarter of a century, kept Europe in constant agitation. The negotiation between Boufflers and Portland proceeded as fast as the necessity of frequent reference to Versailles would permit. Their first five conferences were held in the open air, but, at their sixth meeting, they retired into a small house in which Portland had ordered tables, pens, ink, and paper to be placed, and here the result of their labours was reduced to writing. The really important points which had been an issue were four. William had at first demanded two concessions from Lewis, and Lewis had demanded two concessions from William. William's first demand was that France should bind herself to give no help or countenance, directly or indirectly, to any attempt which might be made by James, or by James' adherents, to disturb the existing order of things in England. William's second demand was that James should no longer be suffered to reside at a place so dangerously near to England as St. Germain. 
to the first of these demands lewis replied that he was perfectly ready to bind himself by the most solemn engagements not to assist or countenance in any manner any attempt to disturb the existing order of things in england but that it was inconsistent with his honour that the name of his kinsman and guest should appear in the treaty to the second demand lewis replied that he could not refuse his hospitality to an unfortunate king who had taken refuge in his dominions and that he could not promise even to indicate a wish that james would quit st germain but boufflers as if speaking his own thoughts though doubtless saying nothing but what he knew to be in conformity to his master's wishes hinted that the matter would probably be managed and named avignon as a place where the banished family might reside without giving any umbrage to the english government lewis on the other side demanded first that a general amnesty should be granted to the jacobites and secondly that mary of modena should receive her jointure of fifty thousand pounds a year end of section ten recording by general mundo